Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. I've got two things I want to talk about today, taxes and travel. Can you guess which one I love talking about more? Travel's coming later, but I got to talk about taxes. So few things here. If you've already filed and you're like, where's my refund? Or let's say you haven't filed. I want you to go to the IRS tool at irs.gov and set up to check where's my refund. Why would I have someone who hasn't even filed taxes yet check to see where's my tax refund? Because it's tax ID theft. Now, if you filed your return, I want you to go there to make sure the IRS has processed your return. Uh, the IRS gave a warning before tax season even started. I think they did it in December, saying, hey, we got no people here, and we're going to foul up this tax season, just so you know. So far, we're not hearing a lot of complaints about foul-ups, uh, but it's early. But I want you to make sure that you see what's going on with your return that you've already filed and know if your refund shows it's already been paid and you don't have it, you know there's a problem and you got to get to work on that, uh, trying to reach somebody at the IRS, which apparently, surprisingly, has been easier, not easy, but easier than the last couple of tax seasons. The IRS is apparently trying to hire a huge number of people to try to fix the abysmal customer no service that exists at the IRS because the extreme shortage of staff they have there. But if you have not filed yet and you go to where's my tax refund and it shows it's already been paid to somebody, you then know that you have been a victim of ID tax theft, and you've got a job in front of you, uh, get to work on if, if nothing shows, you know, no record of return, everything, then you're cool. You're fine. And then if you are somebody who believes procrastination always pays, and you're going to get around to doing the return, well, I want you to know that 
paying to prepare your return is not necessary usually if you have a simple situation, and particularly if you have a more moderate income. This isn't true for ultra-high income earners, but for most taxpayers, you're eligible for IRS free file. You go to irs.gov, just like where I sent you to check the status of your refund, you can see the IRS free file icon there, click on it, and you'll see what tax prep software you can use to file for free. And if you live in a state with a state income tax, you can also see if you're able to file, prepare and file your state income tax for free as well with various particular software packages. So the tax season has actually been calmer this year so far than 20 and 21 where we were in the midst of such heavy COVID and hopefully it stays as a more relaxed tax year. We can always hope. Krista? All right, we'll get to some questions here. The first one I have is from Patricia in Georgia. She says, my apartment complex has just put in place a new tenant rule where every tenant that owns a car must place a specific sticker on it. No problem. But they are also asking that if we have any overnight visitors, we must place guest passes in their vehicle and give the front office details on the guest vehicle before a pass is given. Can they do that? Isn't there some privacy law? And what if the office is closed and we cannot get a guest pass? Are they legally allowed to tow the vehicle? There is no privacy law that protects in this case, Patricia. And yes, the landlord can do all those things, even as far as towing the vehicle, if they have it properly signed, as you said, you're from Georgia, uh, is that it's properly posted as code requires in the state of Georgia, and this would be true in any state. So the landlord obviously has had some issue, some problem. They're worried about the various cars that are on their premises. They want to get control of them, and that is standard. And you said you're fine with the tenant rule of having your own sticker. The hard part, if spontaneously somebody comes over, that's where this is difficult. And if the landlord has come up with no procedure, that's a problem. What a lot of large complexes do is they have a, a unit you can go to that's kind of like a um, simplified ATM that you go to and you put in your tenant code number and you temporarily register a visitor vehicle and it prints out a pass and you put it in the vehicle. And I think it would be reasonable, Patricia, to ask your landlord if they are going to provide any kind of automated system so if you have a last-minute guest that they can park there and you can register them and put the sticker in. It's a, it would be legal almost certainly for them to have this procedure, but it certainly isn't tenant-friendly if they offer you no way to do it on a spur of the moment. Let's say some, a relative came in and surprised you from out of town and because uh, it's your birthday or whatever. And then you got to figure out what in the world to do with their car so it doesn't get towed. That is not tenant or guest friendly. This is from Connie in North Carolina. Can you please clarify the different federal agencies' purposes and where they might overlap? 
For example, the FTC, CFPB, Attorney Generals, and any other office agency that helps the consumer. Nothing personal happening right now with me. It just seems confusing, especially with the FTC and CFPB. Who takes care of what? Okay. And Connie, you're getting into a game of alphabet soup because you have things the FCC does. Um, The federal agency thing is so difficult for the public to figure out that that's why so few complaints are ever filed with one of these agencies. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is unique in its structure in the federal system. That the uh, the website's consumerfinance.gov, you can file a complaint with them against an individual financial institution, mortgage company, credit card company, Um, there are some other payday lenders, things like that. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, different from the FTC and the FCC, will actually investigate your individual complaint. Now, what do they do by investigation? So they send it on to the organization you've complained about that is then given typically 30 days to answer back to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and answer back to you. And so uh, the banks, credit unions, credit card companies, none of them want to be on that bad boy, bad girl list with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau because that's the second part of how it works, which is how the FTC and FCC work. They take your complaints and they put them in a database. They do nothing to address your individual complaint at the FTC, which would be a complaint about a general business, not a financial one, and the FCC about a technology company like uh, the cell phone carriers and the traditional monopoly phone companies. They just record in their database that somebody filed a complaint against XYZ company. And then when enough complaints come in that are similar, then they might launch an investigation of the practices of that organization. What makes the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau unique is they actually take action on individual complaints that are filed. Now, then you mentioned attorneys general. So the U.S. Attorney General does not take consumer complaints. That's not their role. State attorneys general, though, in many cases, do act on complaints from people about organizations within a state. State structures are different from state to state. Insurance is regulated by the state, and each state will have an insurance department or insurance commissioner that takes complaints about homeowner, auto, and various insurers for various purposes in the state. The Attorney General in states where they do will have a consumer affairs function in some states, or it may be a separate department somewhere in a state bureaucracy. So you can see that it's hard to figure out where to go, who to complain to. One other I forgot to mention, the U.S. Department of Transportation that has different functions. They have the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration takes complaints about vehicles, Again, they don't act on an individual complaint. They are databasing those things, and that's how they establish patterns when a vehicle has to be subject to a recall. 
Um, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, similar thing. They don't act on your individual complaint about an unsafe toy or something like that. When they see a number filed, that's when they launch an investigation and may try to do something about it. The DOT in the Department of Transportation, where people file a complaint about an airline, they log those complaints. They don't try to solve your individual problem with an airline. The reports are published each month, and they can be a hall of shame for an airline when they show that they're offering lousy service on bags, on-time arrivals, canceled flights, all that, and consumer complaints. So um, that is as best I can give a quick summary, and that's why it's so hard for consumers to figure out where to go to try to get something resolved. This is from Sue Ann in Wisconsin. Dear Clark, my husband and I are at odds about hiring a financial planner. I don't feel we need one because I feel we can learn enough from listening to you. So to keep the peace, I agreed to talk with someone. It gets a bit confusing from here. The person we met with is a licensed insurance agent and would be the main person we would work with. When we asked if he was a fiduciary, he said he wasn't and that the gentleman for whom the company is named does all the actual monitoring and adjusting of our investments. When I asked if they were a fee-only fiduciary, he stated that they were fee-based. We did check, and the gentleman for whom the company is named is a certified financial planner. Could you please help us sort this out? Okay, so we have two things, Sue Ann. First, whether you need a financial planner involved in your life. And second, whether this individual is the right person. This individual is not the right person insurance agents and you ask the right questions you and your husband ask the right questions this individual is not a fiduciary they do not have to do what's in your best interest they make their money by selling you typically garbage insurance products it would take you into reverse on creating financial security for your future using an insurance agent to buy life insurance that protects your heirs or protects one of you in the situation of the death of the other, that's what life insurance is for. But life insurance make their money selling garbage. Now, they don't have to sell garbage, but that's where the real money is made. Selling trashy annuities of various types, that's a cuss word on our podcast, and selling ultra-complicated insurance like variable universal life. If you as a couple need financial advice, you ask the right question already. Is the individual a fiduciary? You only want to hire someone who is in a fiduciary capacity. And I've got a briefing on Clark.com, how to find a fiduciary. There are various organizations that you can hire a fiduciary. But even if you're hiring a fiduciary, it's like saying, hey, I got a bad heart. I got to go to a cardiologist. Cardiologists vary in quality. You want to be not with the person who is last in his or her class in medical school. You want to be with somebody who's really good at it. The same thing with hiring a fee-only fiduciary financial advisor. Not fee-based. Not fee-based. Fee-based is a con job. It's garbage when somebody says fee-based. It's a complete ripoff that I don't even want to get into explaining the difference in detail because it might only confuse the matter. They need to be fee-only 
fiduciary, but even then you want to interview multiple ones to find one whose style and personality meshes with the style and personality of you and your husband. Who needs one? Okay, if you're only in the accumulation phase of collecting money for your future, you likely may not need the services of a fee-only financial advisor. You may need a checkup from one. That's something Garrett Planning Network's really good at. Um, You can get various fiduciary services from Vanguard Fidelity and Schwab. We have a new briefing on Clark.com about using any of those three for financial advice and what they charge, which is cheaper than normal from independence. But when you really need it is once you've accumulated meaningful assets, you're a little older, you might have a complicated family situation, you may own a business. It's not about picking investments. It's about looking at your overall financial picture, your financial future, and doing proper planning for tax and estate purposes. Coming up next, when should you use your airline and hotel reward miles and points? This is an important riddle. I want you to know the answer. I love travel, and it just ate me up the time that I was not traveling during the worst of the pandemic. And lately, I've been traveling on average about, gosh, almost weekly by airplane. And I just love it. I guess I'm a travel addict. So if you're going to be addicted to something, um, it's habit forming, but it's not bad for you like other habit forming things. And there's something that happened, a phenomenon over the last couple of years. A lot of people who are travel nuts like I am had various airline and hotel reward uh, credit cards and piled up these huge piles of miles and points. Well, as luck would have it, you have this pile of miles and points and you remember what redemptions you used to be able to do two years plus ago when you'd go to redeem your points and miles. Now, because of all these points in people's accounts, the airlines and hotels are going through vast waves of devaluation where your points suddenly are worth a tiny amount compared to what they were before. And this is especially true for people who are mega volume chargers on cards who historically have used points on airlines to go front of the plane international. So don't cry a river for them, but the redemptions have uh, been devalued on several of the airlines by 75%, meaning it now takes four points or miles equivalent for each point it took before. So let's say a front of the plane reward was 150,000 points. Now it might be 600,000 points for that same front of the plane seat. The, the increases have not been as great for domestic flights, particularly in coach, but there's been a clear um, loss in value of points 
And I don't see that the trend is ever going to be your friend again with how airlines treat your points. So if you're sitting with a large pile of points, I want to talk about very variable reward levels. So an uh, example is Europe. I spent with a friend a great deal of time helping he and a friend he was taking to Europe look at various redemption levels for business class to Europe. And going right to the kind of example I gave, he had booked and was furious about it two business class seats on one of the major full fare American airlines, which means it was American United or Delta, round trips to London, 595,000 points each. I said, don't go to London. He said, what are you talking about? I say, you can get to London, but don't fly there. And we started looking at different places around Europe, and we were able to find redemptions that were 140,000 points for business class to, I'm trying to remember, it was, I think it was Frankfurt, Germany, or it may have been Brussels. Anyway, we kept looking at every destination in Europe was a different redemption level. You can look at the calendars, but you're going to find that certain destinations require far more points now where the airlines used to ha- use a system where if you were flying from the U.S., to Europe, flying to this zone in Europe was this many points to any airport you went to, and then the next zone was these many points and on like that. And now they're doing all variable dynamic demand kind of points redemptions. And London, Paris, Rome, the three most popular places to fly for Americans using points, they're just killing you on those. So you look at where the airline you have points on flies and look at the redemption levels. But there's something else, too. There are three cartels for flying to Europe. And you're in one of the cartels with the airline you're in. And you know because the flights will say there's a flight on, um, you know, American flight number so-and-so, British Airways flight so-and-so. Aer Lingus flight so-and-so, Iberia flight so-and-so. And you're like, how many planes are at this one gate? And then you'll look at um, like a flight that says Delta and it'll say KLM and it'll say Air France and it'll say, I don't remember what other partners. And then you got United with Lufthansa and all these different partnerships. So you have the ability to redeem those points And most Americans only think about if they've got an American Advantage card, the United Mileage, the Delta Sky Miles, American Express, they only think about redeeming them on the airline they normally fly and whose frequent flyer credit card they have. But often the redemptions will be better to a destination going on one of the partner flights or redeeming through the code share rather than with that airline itself. Hotels, Marriott has been so actively devaluing their Bonvoy points that a lot of people are saying Bon Voyage to Marriott because the Marriott points are now basically, I mean, it's like Venezuela during the crazy inflation they had 
where nothing was worth anything anymore, that's essentially what's happened with Marriott points. And people have been on all the frequent flyer message boards. People are like talking about, where should I go? Should I go to Hyatt? Should I go to Hilton? Should I go, where should I go? You know, the IHC, IHG, IHC. The reality is the hotel points thing is really becoming so worthless. And Marriott in particular, devaluing for high status people, the benefits that came with being high status that in my mind, unless you're a corporate traveler and the company is paying for all your hotel stays, book with third-party discounters. Don't ever book with the hotel chains anymore. You become a free agent if it's your money and you book whatever the best deal is on the best quality hotel you can find for where you're staying that night. Now, I have never been loyal to any of the hotel programs, even though I'm members of all of them. I go with whatever hotel deal I get, wherever I'm going, that is the best. And because I'm paying all the cost, I'd much rather pay a third less for a hotel than earn some points that I'm going to try someday to try to redeem for a free stay, when for me, the big savings is saving money every stay. Krista? Okay, we have a few questions here. This one is from Allison in Georgia. I met someone in an online dating site and had a two-year relationship with him. I helped him do several Bitcoin transactions and also gave him over $55,000 of my own money for Bitcoin. Even though we broke it off, we still talked and I helped him with a few things. He actually needed help with his bank accounts and we got pretty close but weren't dating anymore. And I haven't heard from him in almost a month now. I don't know if you have any help or advice that you could direct me to try to get the $55,000 in Bitcoin back. Wait, 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 wait. So the ex-boyfriend has like absconded with it seems that the money way. that she put into Bitcoin? Yeah. Said he was with a brokers that we haven't heard of. So somebody was patient enough to win her confidence mm -hmm. and took two years to steal this money? Yeah. Oh. I know. It's awful. Oh. It's have awful. you, so have you run to, this by Christopher? Yeah, I talked to Christopher. Okay, first let me tell you who Christopher is. Christopher is one of our writers on Clark.com, and he is a very good expert on both crypto and on uh, NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And you knew that he would have a better answer than I would. What did Christopher yeah, say? Yeah, so, and I also asked Allison, it was done through Coinbase, supposedly, which is a legitimate crypto wallet company. But he said, if, if Allison knows the wallet addresses of any of those Bitcoin transactions, it's possible to track the money on the blockchain. You need somebody that knows what they're doing in terms of being able to read transactions on the blockchain if Allison doesn't already know how to do that. If you know the wallet address, all of the transactions are public record. The wallet is like your bank account number. Only every transaction ever conducted through the bank is public record. If you know the account number, there's essentially an electronic paper trail so the the if 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 mm -hmm. is was the bitcoin properly moved right through a recognized exchange if it's one of these um thievery ones it's supposed to be on coinbase so we'll follow up with allison and see and and i'll make sure she's listening to the podcast but i'm gonna make sure that she doesn't have more questions. allison i just want to tell you i'm really really sorry that this person won your heart 
and you thought was on the up and up and may have turned out just to be a con artist. I'm very, very sorry about that. And you're not the first person and you're not going to be the last because I've read so many articles about people who this is the newest con. In fact, I think I did a podcast about it mm-hmm. a while back. Yeah. But this is Around the hottest, Valentine's Day. This is the hottest con right now with romance scams is uh, stealing money from people through crypto that becomes uh, very hard ever to recapture. And I hope that uh, some of the suggestions Christopher has given will actually lead to a positive path to you being able to reclaim at least some of this $55,000. From Michael in Arkansas, on a different note, I just turned 40 and need a midlife confidence boost from Clark. My wife and I have a five-year-old, but are expecting a second child this fall. Congratulations. Yes. I'm excited but concerned at my age. We have a household income of 156000 with approximately 550000 in retirement save investments, 15000 in a 529, and 140000 in cash. Our home is valued at four twenty, and we owe about 100 left at 2.6%. We have no other debts. Am I in a position to care for this next bundle of joy we're so excited about, or will they be wheeling me down to their high school graduation? All right, so first of all, you'll only be 58 at the high school graduation. I have three kids, one at, born at, when I was 33, one at 44, and one at 50 years old. And when my son graduates in two years, I will be there for his graduation, and I will be walking <laughs> if I'm still cooking, if I'm still I'm saying I'm going to be here. As far as you at 40, I mean, you're gonna be you're gonna be a spry, fifty-eight year old. That's not old anymore. That's the new thirty-eight, right? Definitely. Yeah. So, and also, you're doing great with your money. All right. Let's start with what you said last. You carry no consumer debt at all. Your equity in your home is amazing. Their home's worth four twenty. You owe a hundred. You have a third of a million dollars of equity in your home. You've already saved over half a million dollars towards retirement. You have $140,000 in cash on hand. I mean, you got it going on. Think about it. You wouldn't want to pay off your mortgage, but you could be completely mortgage debt free and still have $40,000 left over. You can handle the kid. Now, you may not be able to handle if the kid is colicky, doesn't sleep well at night, goes through terrible twos, but in terms of finance, you're good. This is from Emily in North Carolina. After nearly 17 years with the same company, I'm ready to move on. I've been applying to jobs and interviewing like mad. I've run across a few companies who don't offer health insurance. I'd be leaving a large corporation with great benefits. What options for affordable health insurance that I could actually use are available? My husband will need coverage as well since his employer doesn't offer health insurance either and we don't have kids. So, Emily, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. You can qualify and you don't have to worry about underwriting for medical for any pre-existing conditions for a plan on the health care exchange. North Carolina, I don't think is... uh, has their own healthcare exchange, so you go on healthcare.gov. Change of employment during a year makes you eligible to enroll outside a normal enrollment period if you were to take a job with an employer who doesn't provide health coverage. 
but you have to factor in that this is going to be a big cost for you. You got to go on there. You'll be able to get an estimate of what it would cost for you to have health coverage. And depending on your family income, you may qualify for a subsidy on the premiums. You may not, but you have to expect that you're looking at somewhere around for each of you, maybe somewhere around $8,000 a year on the exchange. So a job without health benefits, and I don't know at a place that has health benefits, you may have to pay some portion of the premiums yourself. The employer doesn't pay at all. But you have to factor in that you're looking at uh, somewhere north of $15,000 a year to insure the two of you. Alternatives. If you are part of a particular religion, you may be able to do a religious-based health co-op. It is not health insurance. It is a risk pool that you pay a much lower premium in for a benefit that is capped by that organization. You have a chronic illness, serious illness, a cancer. You may not have a meaningful benefit from it. But for routine kind of medical things, the religious-based co-ops are very inexpensive relative to what you would pay for traditional real health insurance. The difference is traditional real health insurance bought on the exchange, you're going to have high deductibles, but once you've met them, you have truly comprehensive coverage that is not capped. If you go into one of the religious-based co-ops, you will have uh, benefits for routine stuff right from the get-go, but serious illnesses your coverage will be very limited in most cases. And I want to thank you so much for joining us for this episode. And if you have a specific question you'd like one-on-one advice, we've got that for you for free. And we've had it now for just short of 30 years where we've provided free one-on-one advice from our Team Clark Consumer Action Center. You can see how to contact Team Clark at clark.com slash CAC for Consumer Action Center. Or you can call in any weekday from 10 Eastern in the morning to 4 Eastern time in the afternoon at 636-49-CLARK.